This podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult with your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're back here with Dr. Tadros today. I'm your host, Vanessa. Um, and today, we are actually uh, going to do something a little bit different. So in our pilot episode, we mentioned that one of the origins of this podcast, uh, as well as the inspiration for its title, comes from Dr. Tadros's blog called Not Your Doc. So for today's episode, we're adapting an entry he wrote in May of 2021 surrounding commonly worded medical phrases with non-obvious meaning. So what we're basically going to do is I'm going to throw out some of these phrases, many of which will be familiar to people listening to the pod if you've ever been to a doctor and asked a question. And Dr. Tadros is going to give us a translation. Um, as with a lot of topics that we'll cover on this show, Dr. Tadros your perspective as an actual physician and your willingness to pull back the curtain <laughs> for those of us who aren't is going to help us get some better understanding of how physicians think and then how they speak to patients as a result. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. Thanks. Uh, how was your week? It's going pretty well. Oh, it's exciting Yeah. Stuff. It's been busy, busy, very busy at the clinic, but lots of exciting things happening. Yeah. So, um, so in reading this blog post, um, which will be available for our listeners to read in its entirety, it's going to be both in the podcast description and on our social media streams. Um, I basically saw four categories of topics that doctors cover with patients that you wrote about in this post. Mm -hmm. The first one is managing patient expectations for procedures and treatments. So for example, you write... Before an injection to numb the area around an open laceration, the patient hears, this is going to pinch slash sting a little uh, or burn a little bit. Or after a patient gets a portion of their colon removed in surgery, the patient is told, you will have a little bit of diarrhea for a while. So, like, objectively, a shot near an open laceration won't just sting or burn a little bit. And if you have part of your colon removed, you're not just going to have... A little bit of diarrhea for a little while so yeah. what what are doctors trying to do when they see these things that just seem crazy understated yeah well so <laughs> the good news about it is not not only my physician heard these statements or sometimes even said them earlier in my practice and my and my medical life but I'm also a patient and I have family that are, yeah. that are patients so so I've been around uh, you know my father-in-law and my, my kids so I, I hear it from both ends both as a physician and 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 as a from my colleagues and also as a family member so sometimes uh, when people use the typical English words um, and this is in any profession. We have jargon, et cetera. But when, we're, when we try to use the word pinch or burn uh, or sting to, to describe a pain, um, uh, 
pain is a subjective uh, uh, sensation. Sure. Um, and and for the vast majority of us, uh, whenever we get an injection, it more than stings and pinches and burns. Um, especially if you're already scared or, or you're already in pain, um, uh, that's that's part of the issue we run into. And then people kind of mistrust you or mistrust the nurse who gave them the shot, etc. Mm. Uh, so that's that's part of our problem. And when people say a little bit of diarrhea, if you're not used to having any diarrhea, <laughs> you're not used to, you're used to having any problems. Sure. A little diarrhea may set you up at home and you may not be able to leave the house uh, sometimes for weeks to months until, uh, for instance, taking out part of your colon. <clears throat> it takes a while for the uh, rest of the colon to, to, to uh, step up and absorb the extra fluids so that you can get back to a regular stool, for instance. So, so unfortunately, when we describe these these things that are that are affect your life uh, or affect your kids' life or your family member's life, we need to be a little more careful. We need to kind of give a range, and I right. think that's extremely important to give ranges: mild, moderate to severe, or best case, worst case, and average case. Hmm. Yeah, because it's it seems like saying you know this you know it'll you'll have a little bit of diarrhea or this might sting a bit or something seems so understated to the point of being like almost misleading. Yep. That's right. It, it feels misleading to, to the typical patient. You're right. Okay. So that, and you're telling us that it's not the aim of medical professionals to intentionally mislead us about those expectations. That's it's right. just kind of how that people need to be more intentional, honestly, about how they're explaining things to patients. That's right. And I've been yelled at twice for giving people too much information, so being too descriptive about uh, about uh, about something. Uh, but but the vast majority of people, and it depends on age and 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 background, etc. Uh, where where how we should describe things. So if somebody's never had a shot before, we need to probably spend a little more time. If somebody's used to shots, like I'm going to go get my booster for my coronavirus, my my, my Omicron, I know what it's going to feel like I've had several of these shots and previous shots also so and I'm an adult so totally different uh, perspective as somebody who's never had shots before or, is a, or has a known phobia or fear of shots okay so here here are some more here are a couple others for you so um, one is would be instruction to someone who is chronically short of breath at rest to quote use this rescue inhaler only when you are short of breath not all the time mm-hmm. um, and then another two is you know if a medical professional is trying to help figure out where pain is located for you and you say it hurts on my side and then they press here and they say, now, does this hurt? Like, obviously it hurts and obviously I'm short of breath. So, mm-hmm. like, when am I going to what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> right. These are ones these are kind of mistakes that I made myself. I had one of my patients who was severely short of breath in my office repeatedly. And I would ask her to demonstrate how she was using an inhaler and it was she would use it properly. And then finally, I asked her when she actually uses it after a couple of visits. And she says, well, I never use it. I'm always short of breath. And I just, I'm, <laughs> and, and so I didn't think that I needed to use it because you told me not to use it too often. And so uh, so for me to put, uh, you know, worsening short of breath from your baseline, you know, mm. OK, you're always short of breath when it gets worse because whatever you got a you got a cold or a respiratory infection or you had to walk to the to the uh, to the mailbox and and now you can't catch your breath so I had to I have to define what the baseline is mm. uh, the patient you know and I, I'm the one that had to define it a poor patient didn't know uh, what I was talking about so uh, so that's that's the uh, that's the first thing is that you have to know what the baseline is and then the same thing with belly pain and this is the same thing <laughs> I, I catch myself I laugh because I 
I still picture myself, you know, somebody tells you it hurts in the right lower part of their belly near where their appendix should be. And you go ahead and press there and you ask if it hurts. Well, it was already hurting. That's why they're seeing you. Uh, so does it hurt no, more? No, it, it doesn't hurt when you push right, on it, right. actually. It, it hurts more. So more shortness of breath in your baseline, more pain than your, your baseline pain. Uh, you know, does this make it your pain worse? Does this, you know, use this inhaler when your shortness of breath is worse? So, uh, yeah, these are these are ones that I made mistakes with myself. So it sounds like some of these are some of the things that are just obviously missing from these statements are just like qualifiers mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. quantity or or quality, mm-hmm. right? Like if they, how much or in compared to something would That's right. feel easier to answer and also maybe get a better like, you know, answer from the I, patient. I took Latin class, I took rhetoric <laughs> in college, and it still not did not prepare me uh, well for for an, uh, asking questions and understanding where where the starting point was, uh, and so and. And it's important not to use, even if you think that you're using basic English words for any any specialist or mm-hmm. any, any any anybody. And this is attorneys and everybody else, accountants, life insurance salespeople, same same issues. Um, uh, it, the, these words, oftentimes in, uh, that are typical English words, don't mean mean the same thing um, uh, that they would to a typical uh, you know client or patient. Uh, so. Sure. Yeah. They may be using the words different. They may be Im- implying a different meaning to their words right. than maybe they're commonly understood That's as. That's right. Okay. Nobody's, nobody's trying to obfuscate. Uh, nobody's <laughs> trying to hide uh, anything. But but uh, for uh, in order to go, get through your day, we take shortcuts, these, uh, mm-hmm. uh, these heuristics and how we talk and how we explain things. We say it over and over again, sometimes thousands of times throughout the year. And so you've kind of become numb to, you know, you just, you know it's just like going through a drive-thru, you know. Right. Right. You know, just the automatic uh, patter uh, that somebody says, but it, uh, but we have to recognize who uh, you know who's in front of us. Right. And and besides that, you know, the person next to them sometimes mm-hmm. they come with a loved one or uh, or an adult or a child, uh, etc. That's next to them. And I, I will speak one way to the, the patient. I'm always looking at the patient. In my case, patient mm-hmm. or the client, uh, stuff like that. Then I'll and then I'll, I'll look to the one uh, the person next to them who may have a different understanding or different background, and I'll mm-hmm. explain it somewhat differently. But I always talk. To the patient first and uh, and explain it and I have to have the body language the the eye contact the nod right. uh, they're asking appropriate questions that uh, etc or uh, and occasionally whenever I've had problems in the past I'll ask somebody to say back to me what I just mm-hmm. told them instruction wise in their own words not just mimic my my pattern right. and stuff like that so I can catch understanding but uh, and that's by the way that's one of the things that we do for competency jumping off subject competency uh, not 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 uh, statutory competency not through the legal system, but but medically, uh, we want when we talk to patients. Competence. Say say what you mean by competency. Yeah, this is mental competency. Okay, that's, right. that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, mental competency is uh, whenever I'm explaining something to somebody, informed consent. Yeah. Uh, or if I'm going to do procedure or sending them for a procedure, or I'm explaining a medication or et cetera or a lab result, um, I, I want to make sure that that they understand, um, and I have to. I'm the one that has to gauge. Um, their language ability, their their background, their history, uh, uh, their uh, etc., and then uh, and then use my abilities to, to to explain it to that person, or sometimes write it down for that person, or explain it to that person, then also explain it to their uh, their their caregiver, etc., mm-hmm. so that somebody else knows. Um, and they could explain it further uh, once they step away from the office. It sounds like you're explaining a very conscientious approach that probably not all physicians and healthcare professionals adopt. Yeah. But it's good to hear your thought 
process because as patients, we can know to advocate for ourselves in this way and ask for clarification on some of these things. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to say this, and we will, every time I talk with you, Vanessa, I think about another blog. Um, <laughs> once you, the patient walks, I'm going to talk patients. Uh, once the patient walks into your office, uh, I'm talking when I, I was a primary care physician, they're technically on your clock. I know you're supposed to be there for the patient, but I'm going to be honest. The doc is the one that's got a list. Uh, the patient has their stuff to do for that day, but the doc also has the stuff to do for that day. And the patient may come in with a list of, of uh, concerns and a bunch of questions and mm. maybe organized or disorganized. They may bring in another person with them. Um, uh, and uh, so if the doc's running late, that sometimes cuts into the patient time, which un- unfortunately means that the doc tends to be a little, uh, little less uh, um, uh, uh, didactic, a little less explanation, mm. uh, a little bit less, uh, maybe a lot less ability to slow down and discuss and to look for body language signs that the person, patient understands, the patient is comfortable, et cetera. Probably That's more prone to oversimplifying then. Right? Sometimes not explaining or oversimplifying. Yeah. Uh, we'll cut out, we'll cut out all the, 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 the third and fourth problems, uh, that, uh, that maybe come from a drug and just give you the first one or two, uh, that are most likely to happen for instance. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then that kind of rolls into the next category of topics that you write about here, which is basically diagnostics. So meaning statements a patient might hear from the doctor when the doctor is either trying to determine a diagnosis or have already landed on one. Mm -hmm. So I I roped in statements about testing as well to this category. So um, let's start there then with routine testing. So what does a a normal or negative result on a final report mean for for a a routine test? Yeah, all all patients want um, the ability to breathe a sigh of relief if they're waiting for a test result, Mm -hmm. blood work or chest x-ray or imaging or anything like that. And the word normal or negative does not always mean what it says. Normal or negative um, let's start back up. Every test has limitations, whether it's blood test, mm. x-ray, PET scan uh, to look for cancer. Every test, stress test, mammogram, every test has limitations. So even if a test is normal, a stress test is normal, does not mean that you don't have any heart disease or does not mean that uh, that that you don't have any heart disease to explain your symptoms, your palpitations or chest pains or whatever. Mm. So that's part of the problem. And doctors don't explain that. Mammograms for many years uh, before we had 3D mammograms had a four to eight percent false uh, negative rates. Wow! So uh, before we had uh, uh, more more imaging, more image quality. This is only until five eight years ago. Uh, we we would uh, when we told a, a woman typically that her mammogram was negative for the year, the screening mammogram. What we didn't say, and it was written on the bottom of the report, the, the most most. Uh, um, um, uh, radiology, uh, breast radiologist would, would write at the bottom of the report that there's a, with this technique, there's a four to eight percent chance of missing a breast cancer. Hmm. Uh, more so in women who are younger, who had more dense breasts, had more fibrocystic breast uh, lumps, etc. And so what women hear is negative, uh, but what they don't understand is four to eight out of, uh, out of the out of the hundred negative people, four to eight of them we could be missing a, a lump that may be of significance. Wow. So that's uh, so that's uh, and. We've improved on that uh, with more uh, more recent breast techniques, <clears throat> but so, the same. But that's that's so. When you hear it with the word negative, uh, you actually have to ask more about you know what did this test for? Does this explain you know? Does this mean I'm okay for the rest of the whatever week, month, year? Right. Uh, you know, etc. Um, and so that's the same thing. That's the same with anything: stress test, mammogram, um, uh, cholesterol panel, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's two more here that you write about, um, you know, uh, so 
maybe, you know, a patient wants a, a more accurate and definitive test and occasionally they'll, they'll be told we ran a genetic test or we a send out test and it, you know, shows right. whatever results. Um, and then also on the flip side that if they, the, the, you know, the, the patient almost has their concern dismissed because the test, you know, didn't show anything or exam mm-hmm. was negative and there's kind of nothing we can do about your symptoms. So right. talk about both of those. So, the, uh, so sometimes it sounds fancy to say we got an MRI, we got a nuclear medicine study, we did a send out test. That means they had to send out to a specialty lab, uh, or we did a genetic, all the people that here nowadays, you know, genetic testing and et cetera. So sometimes uh, just the fancier the, 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 the technology or the fancier the terminology does not necessarily mean that we're getting data or information back that is helpful or answers the question that we posed. Ooh. A lot of times docs don't always, a lot of times, many times, occasionally, uh, I'll get into trouble here, docs will order <laughs> tests that are not quite right for the patient's uh, needs. Their mm. screening t- needs, uh, you know, screening means you don't have any symptoms, but at risk, uh, or uh, diagnostic needs, it means you have symptoms. Yeah. Um, so sometimes that's not, you know, so a lot of times doctors will uh, order on a, on a female with, uh, you know, 45-year-old female with chest pain uh, who has uh, two risk factors for heart disease, they'll sometimes order a standard treadmill test. Uh, and uh, uh, because the resting EKG is normal, and uh, but sometimes that's that that is an increased risk of false negative t- uh, results for mm. that woman, and so sometimes that woman needs something else, stress test plus something, some sort of imaging, stress echo, stress thallium. Uh, so, so you have to be careful. Just because somebody ran a test or ran a fancy test or an expensive test doesn't mean that it's the right test. Doesn't mean that they got the results back that helps explain your symptoms or your or your risks. Mm. Um, um, so um, I think that that point about the mo- the fanciest and most expensive test is definitely not necessarily going to be more conclusive or definitive That's or right. useful in diagnosing whatever your problem is. That's and it's correct. okay to think through that lens and ask those questions to your practitioner. That's right. And sometimes just ordering a battery of tests. So now what we've gotten to uh, is the, uh, we call the shotgun method. Yeah. You just got, <laughs> you know, if you have diarrhea, I don't even want to listen. I, I'm just going to order a bunch of tests that look at your, your stool. And yeah. and then if it's negative, I'll say, I don't know. Then maybe I'll slow down and listen. Uh, so that's oftentimes that have a respiratory panel mm. for, res- for respiratory viruses. Uh, so they don't slow down and think that maybe a lot of times you don't need that test um, or it's not going to help me make a different decision are you going to get better most likely if you're young and healthy you're going to get better without uh, any any fancy testing from me right or from the emergency room um, a practitioner so uh, that's so that's some of the some of the stuff that we're that that we run into uh, don't be wowed by the fanciness of the doc or mm. the fanciness of the the university or the fanciness of the of the of, of or the expense uh, you know etc sure. uh, insurance companies by same token we, we talk insurance companies tend to abide by uh, evidence-based medicine. So they tend to, uh, whenever they approve or don't approve something, they say, you can go to the test, but we may not cover it. So one of the things is that they tend to abide by evidence-based. Uh, for instance, um, an MRI for somebody with low back pain that's uh, that's uh, otherwise healthy and has no risk factors for anything bad like cancers or fractures. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, no, no insurance company will approve an MRI for several weeks to months hmm. uh, uh, You know, after you have initial injury or initial 
pain. Uh, you know, you have to try several conservative things like physical therapy and uh, et cetera. Uh, and then maybe they'll approve it. And often, sometimes not if it doesn't do some other uh, features. And this is not something that they make up. This is something that they uh, abide by that's evidence-based, that's been research-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, by same token, <clears throat> sometimes whenever you've done conservative stu- uh, uh, treatment uh, options, uh, this conservative means uh, uh, less expensive, less invasive mm-hmm. uh, uh, treatment options or diagnostic options, sometimes they still won't cover it, in which case then your physician or, or practitioner has to go to bat for you yeah. to explain to the insurance company why you do need the, 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 the update, the fancier test, the more advanced test. So it sounds like it takes a good practitioner to kind of walk you through those steps and yes. help you get to the point of maybe getting that fancier diagnostic right. test. I want, I want patients to know that I want them, what, what's happened over many years is that they, we think that the electronic medical record is kind of keeps the, um, the, the, the storyline going in terms of your sometimes right. multi-week or multi-month <laughs> Yes, that it's process. a narrative. It's a narrative in there, uh-huh. and anybody can find it. Any practitioner right. can just read it and get updated. But it really, if you, what really, what all of us recognize as we grow older is that you really need somebody who knows you. Not yeah. only has it recorded in the electronic medical record or electronic health record, but also knows you, right. not just reads it off the record to understand uh, these chronic issues or things that are not getting, that are getting worse in terms of symptoms or not getting better with the treatments. Right. You really need somebody who kind of knows you, not just reads the record. So that kind of relationship with somebody is, you know, is going to, it's going to help you in these situations where you have received negative test results and you still have some sort of symptom. That's right. Uh, so a good, you know, a good practitioner is not going to say there's nothing else we can do. There's, you know, no, and nothing's wrong. Dismiss you outright. That's right. Uh, so there's a reason for everything. And sometimes the reasons are psychological. In the old, old days, super, we used to call it the derogatory term, super tutorial. It means in your head mm. uh, and stuff like that. And uh, true, everything is in your head, but uh, it's bio, bio, biologically in your right. head. And so your, your toe, big toe hurts. It, it, it transmits the pain up uh, from your spinal nerve. Perception uh, your, is reality, right? right? Yeah. Transmits up your spinal, uh, up your, up to your spine, up to your brain. Then you perceive it, and it's, uh, and so uh, if it's from gout or if it's from neuropathy or whatever, there's there's a reason for it. Just because our tests don't show yeah. what, what the what, what the cause is, or the physician hasn't listened or can't figure it out, or they have not passed you on to another per- practitioner or specialist, doesn't mean that there's uh, no cause. By same token, when we've done the appropriate testing, people have listened carefully, and there is still symptomatology, then some people say, yeah, there's uh, there's maybe a psychological overlay, et cetera. So mm. I always want people to understand it's not either or, sometimes it's and. Sure. It's not, it's not physical or, uh, or psychological, uh, but it's both. Both and, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then how about this then? Um, you know, when a patient hears back about a test result and there is some sort of abnormality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they may be, you know, we can be told, oh, there's a little something on your x-ray or mammogram or mm-hmm. scan or whatever. What, again, is this an, is this another case of oversimplification or what's mm-hmm. the, what's the, the doctor radiologist or whoever that's explaining this? What are they trying to do by using that f- phrasing and what do they really mean by it? Yeah. So unfortunately, a lot of times test results are received over the phone or through electronic means. The patient mm-hmm. can look in their patient portal or patient record and can see the reports from the radiologist, et cetera. Uh, so sometimes there's not an educational component or it's minimal. Uh, it's not face to face where there's a back and forth conversation. Uh, 
about what does this mean and what if and what that and so because that takes time right uh, you know if, if, if a physician orders a uh, you know 100 tests per week and even 10 percent of those come back and they need to have appointments to sit down and talk over the results they'll swallow up their you know their whole schedule eventually yeah uh, so there uh, so we have to take that into account uh, but but oftentimes uh, whenever there's uh, they could call uh, 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 in the old days we you, uh, little white spots on MRIs in the brain UBOs uh, you know un- unidentified bright objects <laughs> you know we have we have you know crazy terms for these things <laughs> uh, uh, we have better terms for them nowadays <sighs> but but you know uh, a ditzel we used to call it a ditzel a lesion oh my gosh okay. yeah this is it's like it sounds terrible it's, you know like you, you know so you have some sort of terrible pox on your life yeah but but the quickie answer is some of those are mixed up mixed terms uh, medical terms with jargon mm-hmm. um, uh, so you actually have to ask what does it mean yeah. a nodule in my lung right you know is it a nodule you know you and I may say you know so oh my gosh is something I can see well, a nodule. You know, yeah, yeah it's maybe down to a millimeter you know if it's a CAT scan or MRI that's a part of the problem with the fancy testing we have nowadays we can see things down to a millimeter or two right. on your CAT scans your brain scans your chest scans so a lot of times it means nothing that we call them red herrings is we didn't expect to see them they're not causing any problems right. but you have to explain it to the patient uh, because uh, it'll be in the report oftentimes and sometimes they'll want to follow up even though it's it was not what we were went looking for mm-hmm. now that we have this now we have to follow it up sometimes for months to years for instance for lung nodules sure. in former smokers sometimes we have to follow them for several years with repeat scans so you have so even if it's something benign or eventually we find out it's benign it means it's not going to cause any problems we sometimes have to bring you back and spend money for, sure. long, for long periods of time so then on the on the flip side of that then so you know what if a patient has been coming for something routine mammograms pap smear something like that and there's a one-time abnormal mm-hmm. lab result mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of presented to them but in isolation, mm-hmm. you know, from all of the other previous results, what right. what do you make of that? Yeah, so you have to you we take it. So that's always the question: Is the last one that was normal and this was abnormal? Which one's right? Was, yeah. the, was it abnormal last time we didn't pick it up, or is this one this abnormal one that's this time is it actually normal? So you don't know you don't know what's what. So oftentimes you'll see whether it's a lab result like of sodium or potassium, you'll repeat uh, within a certain amount of time. Some things will repeat quickly within a few hours of getting it back. A potassium level or a blood thinning time, a pro time for Coumadin, for instance. You know, as soon as we find this abnormal, we have to repeat it pretty quickly. Other things will say, oh, there's there's abnormality on your mammogram. It's not, you know, your low risk. It's not it's not that suspicious, but wasn't there before. Please come back instead of a year. Please come back in three months. Hmm. So uh, that's all these are really extremely important. And it's extremely important for the patients to know what results are supposed to be coming back so they can look for them. Yeah. Don't always rely that the, 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 the radiologist or the practitioner who ordered the tests uh, are going to to tell you what the follow-up is. Some things get lost in space, despite all the fancy electronic records and ways of keeping track of things. Some patients don't hear the reports back, or they get partial results, yeah. but something is delayed. So oftentimes, for instance, in the old days, we'd get all the lab results back from blood work, but the prostate number would not come back until later. And that you'd get a, a, a call, a male would get a call, a, an elderly male would get a call about all the other results that were okay, but they wouldn't hear about the PSA, and that would get lost 
lost because it came in late and separately. So it's much better now. We have better systems, but I want patients to understand what they're getting and what's in totality, what should be coming back. Sometimes it comes back pretty quickly in a day or two. Sometimes it takes a few weeks, sure. depending. And so you have to you have to stay on top of it. Um, and sometimes with the patient portal, it's much easier. You kind of know what's 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 pending, et cetera. Right. Okay. So then. So, uh, you know, we've taken we've taken all the tests. We've you know done done all of the things, and a patient is still continuing to have this symptom or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you you write one here about the, the the medical professional performs a psychosocial review, and you know once the tests have come back negative and they're solving symptoms, and the pressure, professional may state, I think your alcohol intake may be contributing to your mm-hmm. whatever anxiety, depression, diarrhea, mm-hmm. headaches. That's right. What um. What should we make of that in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, diagnostics? Yeah. So some people think it's a wastebasket, uh, you know, diagnosis whenever you claim it's your depression or it's your uh, or it's your irritable bowel or mm. it's your fibromyalgia. Oh, of course, it must be my drinking. Right. You just want me to stop drinking or That's smoking right. or whatever. Yeah. That's right. So for me, and once again, a lot of stuff is relationship based. And this is hard to do whenever you're going to an urgent care or somebody that's you see intermittently. Yeah. That's not your regular uh, practitioner uh, doctor nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, because you need a relationship to understand that it's not what you expect. It's not cancer. It's not this. It's not that. It may be that you're really depressed or you're really anxious or you're very obsessive or you have an eating disorder or you have something, you know, or you have, or you have, uh, uh, abuse uh, from uh, in, in a relationship that's contributing to your insomnia, your weight loss, mm. all this stuff that we went looking for medical causes, physical causes, and we recognize that maybe there's a significant psychological uh, uh, cause or causes. Absolutely. Yeah. So then what about, you know, I think as patients, we can sort of dismiss input like that, but also that, I mean, mm-hmm. many of us have been dismissed when we say, oh, I've been looking on the internet for some of the answers to mm-hmm. my question, and these are some of the, presenting some of the things that I found. And mm-hmm. the doctor's reply is like, I'm, I'm the doctor. I know more than the internet. Yeah. And so I love patients who are going to, uh, onto the internet. I, it never bothers me because I don't know more than the totality of the internet. What I do know, I have wisdom about you. Mm. So it's not that I know I have encyclopedic knowledge, uh, which is what the internet does. But what I do is have wisdom to how to pare things down about you. And some things that people bring up, I'll say, oh, I'm not sure. Let me curbside or stop somebody and, and ask a specialist about this. Or let me send you to a specialist about this. Mm. Or let me ask, now that you bring this up, let me ask about your family history. Or, you know, so it opens up doors. A lot of this stuff is dependent on the doc having time or yeah. being able to, or being sharp enough to know how to uh, organize things. Because unfortunately, we call it uh, hand on the door, hand on the doorknob. The doctor stepping out the door right, and the patient right, brings, right. brings up these worries, these concerns, these things that they read, the things that their family told them, et cetera. Sometimes the most important things. That's right. right. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's that's actually that's becomes a, a medical life ability because now the patient has divulged something to you, but you've already been running late. You may have been running late to see them running or they, they you ran late because of them. But the end result is now you have some in, more information that needs to be pursued. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the doc will uh, on the, say either make an appointment and come back or they'll say, let me send you to a specialist then, you know, and, and stuff like that. Or uh, unfortunately too many times the doc will just kind of ignore and say, no, that's not it and move on, mm-hmm. you know, because they already made a decision earlier in that, in that visit. I think this is an, a, a good time to pause and put a reminder in there about the question that you answered in our very first episode, which is why does my doctor's office take so long to get back to me? Mm-hmm. Or why am I, is my doctor always running late? Like yep. these are the, these are the dynamics 
dynamics that they're dealing with and mm-hmm. patients have lots of questions mm-hmm. and that, you know, that decision, those decisions have to be made quickly and in the moment about, am I going to spend extra time on this with this patient or am I going to shortchange someone else over here? Yeah. And it, it all factors in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to ask patients to list all your questions and problems before the doc or the nurse practitioner or physician assistant walks in. Walks it's hard in. to say, yeah. you know, list everything. Sure. And, and, uh, or I had many years ago, one of, one of my, one of my colleagues, uh, GYN, uh, said, I can only take care of three problems per visit. Mm. If you have any more problems you need to make another appointment wow. uh, so people do some ridiculous things like that uh, but but in reality we're not working on an assembly line it looks like an assembly line if you look at like your schedule you have 10 20 30 50 patients whatever whatever yes some physicians have 50 patients if they're if they're doing lots of routine wellness and mm. uh, and small and and, and small uh, autom- automatic things uh, that uh, they can churn through the patients uh, follow-ups etc uh, and and this is even without nurse practitioners without physician assistants uh, so so, uh, but most primary care physicians are seeing, you know, uh, you know, anywhere from uh, 15 to 25, 30 patients per day without the help of nurse practitioners, et cetera. If they have more than that, they usually need uh, assistance or they're working, you know, beyond 12 hour days sometimes. Yeah. So, um, so all the stuff requires time right. um, and, and, and being aware that, that these things may be behind, um, uh, um, behind the obvious what's obviously on the table in terms of symptoms and in terms of test results that there's some stuff hidden that the patient's not aware of the patient doesn't want to divulge etc yeah okay so let's move from diagnostics and testing to to more treatment now at this point so um a patient waiting for guidance for treatment so they say they have a new diagnosis they they may be told you know studies on thousands of patients shows blah 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 and Mm -hmm. so this is what we need to do what we need to start what we need to avoid doing um why why is it form formatted that way when the doctor is giving information mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. treatment? What are they trying to say? So uh, we'll do a whole. Um, I think we'll do a whole podcast on on statistics. Oh, yeah. Statistics. <laughs> so whenever people quote studies. Um, there are usually dozens, if not thousands, of patients uh, in, in a study, the, and and the idea is that you are one of those patients that would have fallen that would fall within that study group. Let's pretend that so if they did it for women between the ages of 15 and 45, and they did a study about bone density, uh, premenopausal bone density, the assumption is that you're between 15 and 45. You're a female. That 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 this study would apply to you if the question came up, uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so unfortunately, sometimes only just one variable would throw you out of that uh, statement. So if you were uh, if you were a heavy smoker um, and and the average smoking between age 15 and 45 for that group that was in the study was uh, you know none to half pack a day but you're a heavy smoker smoking for instance increases your risk for bone density problems later in life. Uh, so uh, so that would automatically the study that they quote would not apply to you. Mm. And so they have to be very careful about whenever people quote studies if it actually number one applies to if you would have fallen within the parameters of the of the study group, um, the next thing is even if you fall within the parameters of the study group, there is uh, there uh, we don't know if if the negative some of the some of the people will not have gotten a benefit or let's pretend from a treatment protocol 
all. Uh, we don't know if you're one of those people that would have got, not gotten a benefit or would have gotten a benefit. So, you know, they said, you know, there's a benefit of 35, uh, improve in bone density by 35%, yeah. uh, blah, blah, blah. We're not sure. Okay, yes, on average, this helped uh, women uh, that, you know, were had low bone densities and whenever they're premenopausal, et cetera, uh, to, to avoid um, uh, osteoporosis postmenopausal. But we're not sure it, where you would have fallen within that group. Uh, so you would have fought, you would have blinded that group if, for that test group if you if you were in that group. But we're not sure how that how that result would have benefited you. And this is the problem with with immunizations, etc. On average, immunizations that are appropriate, CDC and uh, FDA approved, on average, they help the vast majority of the population. Hmm. Small percentage of the population. It doesn't benefit, and small, another smaller percentage, it may actually not uh, may do harm. So that's one of the problems that we have whenever we talk about any statistics is we don't have the error bars mm, or the standard deviation, right. and that's a humongous problem, I think, and that's why I believe people don't understand why. Uh, one, of, for instance, one of my colleagues who is an anesthesiologist needed hepatitis B vaccinations. These are standard now sure. for kids for. Couple decades, and we gave. He already had a standard three, and we checked blood levels to see antibodies that were negative. You know, they were not undetectable. So that he did was not immune, mm. uh, and so we gave him an, uh, one booster. Was not immune. Uh, you know, a couple weeks after the booster, so we gave him another round, another three shots, and he and he never was able to generate antibodies. Wow. So he's one of those people that does not generate antibodies to the type of hepatitis B immunization that was available at the yeah. time. So he's one of those rare people, but it affected him because he deals with blood, etc. He's an anesthesiologist. So, you know, he has to take extra special precautions. Uh, So it's rare. We still give Hep B. I got my Hep B. We give Hep B to to children before, you know, school-age children. Uh, It doesn't mean that we should get rid of it, uh, but but we have to recognize it doesn't help everybody, for instance. Yeah. I mean, that's... You know exactly what you say on here. You know just the da- the danger of you know uh, summing up the cost, the risks and benefits in a for for a treatment just in a single number. Like oh no, it helps you know seventy three percent of patients or whatever, and right. that leaves the patient walking away thinking, oh, I'm probably in the seventy three percent, and it's probably going to help me all the way. That's correct. I don't need to do any follow up or worry. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So um, then continuing on treatment. So let's say um, we need a surgery, for mm-hmm. example, um, because there's something cancerous or a tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the surgeon says, we got it all. Right. We got it all. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. This is typically now, this is variable <laughs> because we now have better technology. It, typically, that's what the, what the surgeon was able to see at the time of surgery with their eyes, with their magnification, whether mm. they had loops, which is magnifiers that they put on the glasses or with their naked, uh, uh, naked eyes or standard vision. That's what they typically mean. Sometimes it means that they did a dye study interoperatively, and they and they and they and they could see you know more, uh, et cetera. Or they could they did MRI inter, interoperatively for brain tumors, uh, and they got it all according to what the MRI showed. But it does not talk about microscopic stuff, stuff that you would uh, that you uh, that uh, that uh, may spread, for instance, through the lymphatics uh, to distant sites. They wow. you know you can't see that. Um, so it seems uh, like a critically way. important qualifier. It we is. Th- can you just say we think we got it all or yeah. based on everything we can see right. we got it all that's correct and yeah. you can modify it with a few words that's yeah. correct and you can and if somebody questions that you can add a few sentences you know this is what we, we were able to do intraoperatively we know that the stage may not be you know not be curable or mm. stuff like that but this uh, we have to debulk we have to take out the primary tumor and then you know and the pathologist will let us know some you know etc some extra stuff and we'll know in a few days right. so adding that makes a big difference and sets expectations appropriately absolutely i mean 
mean, and even, you know, further on expectations, you know, you write a couple of, you know, misleading phrases in here about, you know, end of life care. So, you know, one mm-hmm. is you know, a patient has a poor prognosis or they're near terminal um, and the patient and family may hear, we want to shift our focus to comfort and achieving your goals. Mm-hmm. Like what, what does that mean? What kind of expectations are they trying to set there? Yeah. So when, uh, some, sometimes physicians or nurses will tell a patient, do you want to go back to the hospital? The person is, mm. uh, the, 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 their, their, their primary care physician or specialist have, have given them less than six month prognosis to, to, to live. Uh, um, uh, so that qualifies them for um, 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 hospice uh, in the United States. Uh, Medicare covers hospice for, for prognosis made by two physicians uh, for the patient to, to live less than six months or less. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but whenever you say, do you want to go back to the hospital? Uh, for some people, if they say no, sometimes they think they're just going to get just as good a care as going to the hospital mm-hmm. and getting chemo or, or surgery and stuff like that at home. And the answer is what you're telling him is that we're going to, you know, if, if you're going to have symptoms that are, of the, that are going to be terminal, pain, shortness of breath, we're going to take care of it at home with morphine or, 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 or Valium products, et cetera. We're, so we have to be careful that we explain things. And once again, a lot of our patients are demented or they're delirious, so they don't understand everything. So you have to explain to the, the nurse or the doc has to explain to the family. This means that we're not going to be calling 911 if they're short of breath like they have been in the past and get, going in for two weeks for antibiotics mm. or and stuff like that so we're going to keep them at home and we understand the natural the natural progression of the disease or diseases is going to take their life Mm. Um, so that's important to kind of say that out loud Um, and and once again it's the timing and how you say it and who says it etc who's listening makes a difference obviously but the goal there of you know that about you know achieving your goals is you know a- avoiding dying in a hospital or correct. you know correct. some major surgery that that's you right. couldn't recover from or that's right yeah that's correct and so I, I think we have to define a lot of it is listening to the history of how the patient got to this point and what's been tried etc and and uh, and understanding what their belief what the patient and their loved ones belief systems are and value systems are and then understanding that hospice is not always right for everybody even if they have less than six months to live. Yeah. Hospices may not be right according to what the values and what the belief system of the patient or their relative, their, their, mm. their, their, uh, their uh, 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 healthcare power of attorney uh, who speaks for the patient who can, may not be able to speak for themselves. Sure. So it's extremely important to kind of be clear. And most people are. Most yeah. people have come. It's not an acute problem. It's sure. usually a chronic problem. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, too, you know, there, there's not malicious intent from the healthcare right. professionals in bringing these things up. They're, right. they're not throwing their hands up and saying we give up on you there's nothing else we can do for you and now we don't want to treat you anymore that's not what they're saying i I want when people say i want to have hope we want to say before it was hope for cure or hope for extended life. Now we're hoping that to not go back to the hospital and to have more relief at home with people around you. So the same word hope, one was hope for a cure or mm. for, for remission. Another hope uh, now is for um, uh, uh, more family around you and less 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 time in the ambulance. Sure, and, uh, a so, peaceful mm-hmm, end. Right. Yeah. And so we need to use the word, even though it's the same word hope, it's quite a bit different meaning. Sure. And unfortunately, some of these things happen overnight. You know, yeah. one day you're going for chemo one day you're going to the hospital for your for your pneumonias the next day we're going to stay home and we're going to treat you at home 
Powerful stuff. Okay, um, we're going to move on to the final category, which is uh, medications. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are overlaps with treatment here too, but drugs can be a particularly confusing area for patients and Mm -hmm. one that oversimplified explanations from medical professionals can really make worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So one example that you uh, put in here is uh, when a patient wants to know how a medicine is going to help, they may be told, quote, the mechanism of this drug works, blah, 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 and the wide helps is, you know, so-and-so explanation. What is, why is that the way the doctors are explaining it to us, and what are they trying to tell us by explaining it that way? So in med school, we were taught mechanisms, and then uh, and then certainly whenever you, the new drugs come out that were not available whenever we were learning about medicines in med school, they, we learn about them uh, oftentimes in conferences or from pharmaceutical mm-hmm. representatives. What is the mechanism? Will you tell, tell me what a sure. mechanism is? Mechanism is just how a drug acts in your body to ca- cause the benefit that okay. we're looking for. That's all. Right. all. It's that how does sense. it work in your cells? How does it work in your in your with your with your with your uh, with your electrolytes? How does it work with your uh, neurotransmitters? How does it work to, to to get me the result that I want? Okay, right. That makes sense. Right. So what happens, unfortunately, is that we 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 hypothesize, uh, we postulate uh, from research and stuff like that. Sometimes on animals, etc., how something gets to the effect that we want uh, that mm. a lot of get FDA approval, for yeah. instance. Uh, uh, so uh, and that's good. Enough? The, the the postulating of mm-hmm. how something works is good enough to say that it will likely work on something and then get it approved. Yeah. So okay. yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the FDA doesn't necessarily have to have mechanisms. That people put the mechanisms that, that are putative that they're supposed to be. Have, but what the FDA is interested in is is toxicity and efficacy uh, is what they're interested in. And and uh, so toxicity, how you yeah. know how many people it may hurt and side effects, and then uh, efficacy, how does it does it get the result? Uh, of clinically significant results, mm. statistically significant results for the the disease that there is being treated or the symptom that's being treated. Right. So it doesn't it doesn't it, a lot of times we we don't know we don't know how uh, medicine works or we think we we know but all, many years later we realize it's not it's not the way we thought it uh, worked. Yeah. So that's the, it doesn't mean that it doesn't get FDA approved. It doesn't mean anybody lied. It's just that when we explain that to the patients, we should say we think this is the way it works, uh-huh. but a lot of times. We we, you know, years later, we realize it's not correct. Uh-huh. It still works, sure, but but it but but it's not it's not the mechanism. So uh, just like that, it, you know, possibly incomplete understanding of the mechanisms. There's also possibly an incomplete understanding of the side effects, right? Which is right. That, you know, sometimes you write this one too that a patient might hear, you know, from their doctor. In my you know 30 years of practice, I've never heard or seen your side effects due to this drug. Before. That's right. That's right. So unfortunately, even a doc of 30 years like myself has not had millions of doses of of, of a, a you know SSRI like Prozac. You right. Know, I've had people take thousands, uh, but not millions. And some some of the very rare side effects are uh, only show up whenever you have the millions of doses, um, and not the thousands like I have in my wow. experience. So yeah. you have. Sometimes, and that's the same thing with with the, with the immunizations. You know, whenever they do it on, th- on thousands, but uh, you you see selective types of um, side effects, adverse effects, and then when it goes to millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions, that's when you see some very very rare effects. Uh, uh, but you couldn't pick it up with just thousands of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, doses. And a good a good physician will have you know the the cognitive humility to admit that there's yep. you know, there are limitations and and definitely po- you know possibilities for side effects. 
effects that may be even That's unknown right. and won't dismiss you outright. That's correct. Uh, you know, I, it's uh, we write we should write it down uh, as uh, as possible or patient reported if the doctor didn't witness it themselves and stuff. Sure. Uh, that's that's correct. Uh, and there's something called personalized medicine that's been coming out now for several years. The idea that that we're going to have better ideas about your how your genes and your proteins and uh, work with medicines, et cetera, so that we know certain medicines will work with you and have fewer adverse effects than other medicines. And that's that's uh, the, the here and now and in the near future, we'll have more personalized directed uh, uh, treatments. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to close it down with some uh, talk about drug costs. So mm-hmm. there there's kind of two things that you have on the, here. So, um, you know, we can be told, oh, you know, this is the medication that you should use. This is going to work for you. And the, and the doctor can say, you know, don't, don't worry. This drug is on your formulary, Mm -hmm. um, or, or this drug is generic. Like Mm -hmm. what are they trying to, what are we being reassured of when we hear those things? And are, is it an automatic guarantee that we should go for that medication? Yeah. uh, You know, the word generic, uh, people uh, equate with cheap and the, or inexpensive (laughs) and oftentimes they're not, especially the first few Or even less effective sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. You know, the FDA allows I think a twenty percent leeway in bioavailability. So I think it's a twenty. I think it's ten or twenty percent more bioavailable or less bioavailable. This sure. absorption into the body, depending on uh, the formulation, if right, it's brand or generic. Right. Okay, yeah. Bingo. Compared to the name brand, um, and for some people that makes a difference. Some people that yeah. they can feel they sense a difference. It's not as effective, uh, and so we have to be careful not just poo-poo patients mm-hmm. uh, about that uh, and just dismiss them. Uh, and so. Uh, and just because a doc has samples or it's a new expensive drug doesn't mean that it's the, it's the right drug or the best drug for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but oftentimes that's what physicians or practitioners are trying to do is save on costs. Sure. Uh, you know, patients requ- requested it as good uh, stewardship of people's uh, of, 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 of money, um, et cetera. So, right. And that's uh, definitely a value that patients hold right. for sure as well. Right. So then... Uh, what, what about this drug is on your formulary? What does that mean necessarily? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea here is that, that, the, 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 that the pharmacy benefits company, this is not the, pharmac- not, the, not the big pharma, but the pharmacy benefits company, right. middle, middleman, uh, has decided that out of all the drugs for a class that they've selected one or two to, to, uh, or three to put in, in your formulary that okay. the doc can pick from, that will have a, a, res- a, a better copay okay. as opposed to not on your formulary. So it's the menu of cover medications. Right. That are better covered. Okay. Right, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Right. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much for yeah. being our translator today, Dr. Tadros. Well, hopefully it was a little more clear. I, I think so. I feel a little bit less mystified about some of these phrases, and I think our listeners will too. Um, as always, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can get involved with the podcast by sending us an email to notyourdocpod at gmail.com. You can send us your questions or the doc, your input, your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, that's notyourdoc at gmail.com. Thank you, Dr. Tadros. Thank you, Vanessa. Very good questions. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. this was great. Thanks for opening up your your tr- your brain treasure trove with this blog to us. Yeah, will be fun <laughs> fun to hear from uh, listeners if they have questions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll be next back next time for more. Bye bye. This previous podcast represents my opinions and 
the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.